Target Reviews podcast. In this episode, we're taking a look at neuroscience and discussing schizophrenia with Dr. Srihari Gopal, the Head of Psychiatry Research and Development for the Neuroscience Therapeutic Area at Janssen Pharmaceuticals. My name is Hannah Balfour. I'm the Associate Editor of Drug Target Review, and I will be your host today. But before we get into the discussion, let's have a little refresher on schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a psychiatric disorder characterized by continuous or repeated bouts of psychosis. It typically becomes apparent in the late teens or early 20s and can significantly affect a person's educational and occupational performance. It's a major global health burden. In 2019, the World Health Organization estimated 20 million people worldwide were living with schizophrenia, almost 1% of the total global population that year. In addition, the UK's National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE, has previously reported that about a third of all adult mental health spending goes to patients with this condition. While schizophrenia is treatable and treatments have come a long way since it was first treated through torturous means, schizophrenia drug development has been hampered by the lack of a precise cause. To talk us through the development of schizophrenia treatments and what exciting new developments there are in the field, we welcome Dr. Sri Gopal. Hi Sri, thank you for joining us today. To kick us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about your role as Head of Psychiatry, Research and Development at Janssen? Sure, Hannah. So I've been working at Janssen for about 20 years, and I've mainly been working in the schizophrenia disease area where I help develop drugs to treat uh, patients with schizophrenia. And uh, prior to that, I worked in another smaller company working on the development of drugs for antidepressants and Alzheimer's disease. So all in all, I've uh, had quite a bit of experience in uh, developing new drugs. That sounds fascinating. So I believe the best place to start with this is at the beginning. So can you explain a little bit about how schizophrenia has been treated historically and how those drugs work? What were their targets? Sure. Let's even start before there were drugs. I think um, the earliest known treatments were basically just uh, chaining people to a tree uh, because they were, they, they were difficult to manage. Then in the 19... 30s and 40s, at least in the United States, there was a big building up of mental asylums where patients were aggregated together and they lived together uh, because it was felt like it was easier to take care of them than being out in the general population. And then shortly around that time, they also used uh, a few different controversial treatments. Well, we could consider them controversial now. One was to use insulin shock therapy where they give high doses of insulin to create a, um, a shock to the patients. Uh, then they used also electroconvulsive therapy, which is still used today. Um, then there was a controversial surgery known as a frontal lobotomy. Uh, the belief was that if you took out the frontal lobes of the brain, that it would help reduce the symptoms of psychosis. It's quite amazing what dramatic treatments there were in the past, really. And the 1950s was when actual pharmacological treatments began to come in, wasn't it? That's right. So the 19, I think it was 1953 was the first antipsychotic, and that was chlorpromazine. And that was actually developed as a tranquilizing agent for surgery. And a surgeon found it because he was giving it to patients uh, with uh, mania, and he found that it uh, really helped their symptoms. And that kind of spawned the age of antipsychotic drug development. And our company 
our founder, Paul Janssen, helped uh, develop haloperidol back then. And we've been developing newer and newer treatments uh, even since that day, 60 years ago now. Chlorpromazine and haloperidol are both first-generation antipsychotics, known as typical antipsychotics. So, Shri, tell me, what is the mechanism of action of chlorpromazine? What does it target? So these drugs have a variety of different actions. We think it's mainly due to what's called the the dopamine hypothesis, which means that it blocks a a key receptor in the brain called the, the dopamine 2 receptor. And by blocking that receptor, it's believed to help with the positive symptoms of psychosis, the hallucinations and delusions. But fundamentally, though, we don't really know how it works um, because there's other drugs that don't block dopamine as as tightly or or strongly that still work in treating psychosis. So it's still a bit of a mystery today because um, the basic biological mechanisms of schizophrenia are still poorly understood. And so chloropromazine is still used today in the treatment of schizophrenia, isn't it? It is. It's, It's rarely used in the United States, but I've seen... Other countries, like in Africa and India and Asia, they they still use those older drugs a lot. So later on, a new class of drugs came in called atypicals. These are the second generation antipsychotic drugs. So how are they different in their mechanism of action to the original typical antipsychotics? Yes. So the atypicals, uh, you're right, they came in the late 1980s and early 1990s. They became widespread. And they are a bit different because um, they do act upon dopamine, but they also act upon a second uh, receptor called the serotonin receptor system. So it's believed that by blocking both of those receptors that it um, produces this atypical nature. Uh, It still helps relieve the symptoms of psychosis uh, with less side effects than the first generation drug. And what are some of the side effects? Because as far as I'm aware, there's still some significant side effects with even the atypical drugs. And also about a third of patients aren't responsive to those treatments. That's right. So the first generation antipsychotic drugs like chlorpromazine, they they were poorly tolerated um, in the sense that uh, a lot of patients would get what's called movement disorders where after repetitive use for many months, uh, they would have these uncontrollable movements in their fingers, face, tongue. Um, and it was, it, it, was, it was embarrassing and disabling. Um, nowadays, the atypical antipsychotics have less of those movement disorder problems, but then they, ha- they tend to have a different set of problems. Uh, one of them is weight gain. A second is a prolactin elevation, uh, sexual dysfunction. There's a whole host of different ones. It has changed over the years, uh, the, the profile, the safety profile. And what other issues are there with sort of treatments currently on the market, aside from just the side effect? So the main thing is that there's, there's, there's almost nothing, well, there is nothing really approved to treat negative symptoms of schizophrenia. So there's three core symptoms of schizophrenia, positive symptoms, uh, the negative symptoms, and um, cognition or cognitive deterioration. So for negative symptoms, nothing really seems to work. Nothing has been approved. And so that's been an an intense focus of research. And what I mean by negative symptoms are those are the symptoms where people kind of feel like they feel unmotivated. It's almost like depression in a sense. They just don't want to get out of bed. They just have no apathy. So... Those, those symptoms are a lot harder to treat. 
and I suppose are probably associated with a different area of the brain necessarily to say like the hallucinations and things like that. We haven't pinpointed a specific area of the brain that's altered in schizophrenia. It seems to be more widespread. If you look at imaging studies that have been done, the one consistent thing that we see is that the brain tends to shrink. Uh, There's a part of the brain uh, called the neuropill, which is much smaller in patients with chronic schizophrenia compared to healthy people. And then the ventricles, which are the spaces uh, that the fluid passes through enlarges to compensate for that. So it's not like... um, where you have a stroke, where one artery dies, and then that part of the brain, it just turns black. In schizophrenia, it seems to be more more widespread. So we don't really know which part of the brain is involved in the negative symptoms or the positive or so forth. It's amazing that schizophrenia has been around so long, and yet we still don't know a precise cause. This has hampered or at least slowed down drug development. And while there are genetic factors linked to schizophrenia, we haven't been able to narrow down a precise genetic cause, have we? That's right. So uh, we've, Janssen has been involved in a very large genetic study called the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium, where we looked at um, about 100,000 people with schizophrenia and compared their genetic uh, sequences. Um, there were about 150 genes of interest, which means that there could be some relationship. But there hasn't been like a single gene that's been responsible for schizophrenia. So my guess is that schizophrenia is probably a cluster of similar diseases uh, with similar genetic pathways. Um, And there's not going to be one single cure uh, because of that. That's a really interesting theory, Sri, as I've noticed that a lot of the new drugs being developed and brought to clinic are targeting a number of receptors. For instance, they may target dopamine receptors and glutamate transmission, or serotonin, and so on. Yes, glutamate is an interesting uh, target as well. There have been a lot of companies working on that. Uh, Nothing has really uh, passed phase two to treat uh, glutamate-related psychosis, Uh, but there's some interesting research ongoing for that. And what are some of the most exciting developments in the schizophrenia field? So about five years ago, there was a very interesting paper put out by Uh, researchers at Harvard University at Massachusetts General Hospital, and they found that schizophrenia patients have what's called an overexpression of of, of a gene that's commonly found. It's called complement C4A and C3A. And the complement system is involved in uh, normal inflammation and the immune response. And the reason why that was really interesting is because it was found that schizophrenia patients have overexpression of complement in the brain, and that leads to what's called synaptic pruning, where the different, uh, well, the neurons, when they connect to each other, uh, they get pruned back. So the connections get uh, thinned out because of this overexpression. So now there's this uh, line of research on immune-related causes of schizophrenia, because that may be an area that kind of links all of it together, because I think I mentioned before some of the genetic research that's been done of the different 150 targets. Uh, Most of those targets were in the area of the genome related to the immune function. So there seems to be a a pretty strong hint at something there. That's really interesting. And I suppose also if there's this neural pruning going on, that might explain why the brain is shrinking in the imaging studies. Exactly. You got it right, Hannah. So that's exactly what's happening. So when the synapses get pruned, it's almost like what's behind the synapses, everything starts to die. I mean, not really die, it just starts to shrink 
and kind of wither away. It doesn't completely um, go into nothing. So that uh, could explain a lot of the MRI findings longitudinally that we've been seeing over the last couple of decades. And um, given schizophrenia is so complex, and as you mentioned, it affects a lot of areas on, of the brain, um, it must be difficult to model and to study in a laboratory. So what are some of the key models and technologies that you at Janssen or just generally are used to study schizophrenia? So in terms of modeling, we rely on animal models. And these animal models were actually developed about four or five decades ago. And to be honest, they're not that perfect. Uh, there haven't been any mice, like transgenic mice lines that have been formed that can accurately depict schizophrenia because we don't really know ultimately what causes it. There have been accurate animal models for dementia, for multiple sclerosis and other things. Where, so that way you can test a bunch of different compounds and see what or might, what or might not work. But for schizophrenia, we, we don't have anything comparable. The animal, animal models are not terribly predictive on what happens in humans. So that's also stymied uh, the research efforts. So what is Janssen working on in terms of drug development for schizophrenia? So what we've been working on mainly has been to focus on the area of adherence and compliance to medications. Because one thing that we found is it, it's no good to develop a drug if the patients won't take it. And that's a fundamental problem in schizophrenia because the brain gets altered and people feel very suspicious and paranoid. That's just part of the disease process. So then it naturally goes towards, is my doctor poisoning me? Am I being implanted with the microchip or something that's against my will? So then they just stop taking the medications. And that's probably the worst thing you can do in schizophrenia. And I suppose it also probably makes the symptoms worse down the line. Absolutely. So what I mentioned to you about the brain shrinking, when, when you stop taking your medications, that accelerates that process. And every time you have a relapse, the brain shrinks more. And eventually it just gets down to the point where your, your cognitive abilities are diminished. So taking your medications is one important thing. So we've been focused on developing long-acting injections because we see that as uh, the best possible approach to that. So talk to me about these long-acting injections. What's their mechanism of action and what are they targeting? Sure. So Hannah, these long-acting injections have been around since the 1960s. They're, they're, it's not um, anything new, but what we have done is um, the first generation long-acting injections, they are made of what's called a long-chain fatty acids, and they're very hard to resuspend in a water-based formula. So the first generation long actings were um, created in oil suspension. And it's very hard to inject oil into someone because it's very messy and it causes all sorts of side effects with the injection site. So in the late 1990s, we started developing aqueous-based injections. And we've iterated upon that quite a bit. So now we're up to the point where we can deliver an aqueous-based injection that lasts once every six months. So the thinking is that it reduces the side effects of the local injection site, but then you still get the benefit of having um, the protection from suddenly stopping the medication. Typically with injections, you deliver a smaller dose because it enters the bloodstream directly rather than having to pass through the various aspects of the digestive system first. This can also reduce side effects. Is this the case with the long-acting injections Janssen is developing? 
Correct. So the, the, the but you're right. You're right in the sense that the peak levels are overall are lower than the com the comparable oral. So you're able to give lower doses over a longer period of time. But but also the benefit is that it's much more smooth. So instead of having spikes up and down every single day, you have a slow rise to a peak over a period of several months, and then a slow downward uh, trend. So it um, it's much more smooth in that sense, and that tends to minimize uh, the side effects. So, Shri, what do you believe we need to learn more about or understand better in order to develop more effective therapies for schizophrenia? I think we need a lot more basic science research efforts to fundamentally understand the biology. That has something that has not kept up to pace with other diseases, like in oncology and immunology, for example, where they really understand the biology quite well. Uh, in schizophrenia, we, we've kind of languished for the last uh, three or four decades. So I, if that was, that would be at the top of my wish list. And to narrow down a precise course would also be significantly helpful if we understood the biology better. Absolutely. Yeah. And what do you believe is the future of therapies to combat schizophrenia? Are they likely to continue to, to target a diverse range of receptors? Or do you think we may be able to develop something along the lines of a gene therapy one day? Hmm. So for now, I think companies and most researchers are focused on looking at different receptor mechanisms to improve the symptoms of schizophrenia. And you mentioned glutamate is one hot area of target. The second would be uh, neuroimmune approaches. But gene therapy is not something I've thought about. Uh, that would make sense if we could figure out what genetic mechanisms were involved. I think I mentioned earlier, there's about 150 targets that could potentially be re related. So if it was focused down to just like a handful, then I think gene approach may be possible, but that would really be exciting. Uh, I, I, I would really be interested in, in learning, I mean, seeing that happen. And do you think schizophrenia will ever be a curable disease? I certainly hope so. But um, at the stage that we're at now, I think there's too much unknown to pinpoint something that we can just cure and reverse. Um, so that is my hope, though, maybe with more research and more trials and more drugs out there, maybe we can find a cure one day. All right. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time to discuss today. Thank you, Dr. Gopal, Shri, for joining me today and for your wonderful insights into the complex world of schizophrenia. On behalf of Drug Target Review and Dr. Gopal, thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us for our next episode. Music